this episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show, Nethery Falchuk, Licensed Clinical Social Worker Supervisor, who will be discussing their practice in an area of specialty, body liberation and body trust. I love that. I love that body liberation, body trust. Just that alone got me sucked in. Um, well, Nethery, tell us, what are your credentials and experience? Yes. Well, thanks for having me. And you're absolutely right. There's just a, a felt response, somatic response, just it, the words body liberation, body trust. Um, so I'm happy to be talking about that today. So I am a licensed clinical social worker, board approved supervisor, a certified group psychotherapist, and I am wrapping up my certification to be a body trust provider. Um, yeah. Also Very cool. a meditation teacher. So I like to do meditation as well. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, what is the name of your practice? It's called Ample and Rooted. It's a group practice. Okay. And, and in your practice, your group practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? We are out of network, so we don't accept insurance. And why not is insurance can be very rigid and draconian and a hassle for all parties, Um particularly the reimbursement rates for therapists. There's right. quite a bit of um, inequity in how they reimburse therapists. I've recently heard of a friend, a colleague, who um, actually got $1,500 uh, revoked from her from insurance just for no apparent reason. So mm -hmm. it is um, very insecure. And for those who take insurance, like, I would have a level of anxiety that is pretty um, uncomfortable. So. Yeah, that, that's exactly why I'm getting off of insurance right now. Yes. Yeah. Is that what happened? That they're like being all well, they, ridiculous? Well, they, 
they do clawbacks. Um, I haven't had them claw back anything from me yet. Um, but uh, it's the like you said, the just the certain level of anxiety around it. You know, yeah. um, you know, you can be audited at any time if a number is off on a uh, on a claim or in a note. Then they can demand that you pay them back. So I mean, it's just it's scary. It is scary. And we don't even take insurance. We have um, our clients file for out-of-network reimbursement and dependent mm-hmm. plan that's really can be really helpful. And yeah. even that, they found one of my um, team members, one of my therapists, her personal address to send information to. Wow. Um, so we needed to send something in for, for the claim to go through for the client. But the, I don't know how they found her home address. So they yeah. just have way too much access to all of our information. Agreed. So that being said, do you have a sliding scale or reduced fees that you offer? Yes. Yeah. We have sliding scale starting at 75. Okay. Okay. Um, Do you have weekend or evening appointments? We have evening appointments and um, working on getting weekend availability. So any therapists who are interested in our practice and wanting to work with us and want to work on the weekends, feel free to reach out. <laughs> cool, cool. So, Nethery, is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? I think so. I would say it's my first career. I was in a variety of different roles before becoming like a clinical therapist, just in different social service positions, working at nonprofits, and then went to grad school and started doing clinical work. What drew you to being a therapist? Oh, goodness. Wanting to offer what I wish I had until I found one of my my most recent individual therapists who is just fabulous. And growing up and um, being a queer, genderqueer person, I grew up in El Paso, Texas, and um, my dad's white, my mom's Mexican. So just kind of living in a really, I call it like the liminal space where I'm not one or the other of anything really. So it has always felt confusing. There wasn't much language for who I am growing up. And that led to a lot of inner turmoil, loneliness, confusion, isolation. And thankfully over time, I was able to recognize um, how awesome being queer is and uh, having affirming care and that wanting to just be a safe space for other folks going through that. Yeah, I totally get that. I grew up in the Rio Grande Valley, um, oh, yeah. border town. So <laughs> I totally understand that perspective. Um, especially, you know, as a, a non-binary trans man myself. Um, so tell us a little more about you. I think that that's a, a good introduc- introduction to you. Um, but tell us more about yourself, like hobbies, interests, TV shows, music, pets, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. I am obsessed with my dogs. <laughs> I take <laughs> probably 500 pictures of them a day doing the same thing. And I send them all to my wife. And she's like, uh, it's the same picture over and over again. But she, she also <laughs> loves it. <laughs> so we have two dogs. Love them. Uh, really love hiking actually about to go to Colorado for a vacation that's 15 months overdue. Nice. Uh, so being out in nature, I love being out in nature. Meditation, I have a pretty regular meditation practice. 
and Netflix. I really do love Netflix. And I do love watching the Real Housewives series. <laughs> <laughs> it's like That's a great funny. way to just disconnect and like watch something <laughs> so just random and fun. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Um, so in your work, what modalities would you say you draw upon? Yeah, I, I mostly practice from a relational attachment and a personal neurobio framework. Uh, relational cultural theory, social justice, uh, psychodynamic, and a little bit of um, acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cool. So just kind of diving right into body liberation and body trust here, I think it would be a good idea to start with the question, what is diet culture and where does it stem from? And what sorts of ideas, concepts, or beliefs is diet culture based in? Great question. And I um, think I sent you a link uh, that to put in the show notes for mm -hmm. anyone who's listening who wants additional places to uh, continue learning and unlearning. There's a link that you can just put in your email address and I will send you a handout with some awesome next steps of where to continue to explore this concept. Um, but diet culture is a culture that demonizes certain bodies, so fat bodies, and really elevates the thin bodies, positing that thin is worthiness, goodness, fat is bad, um, unworthy, moral failing. And so it really kind of elevates the attempt at being thin at all costs. So countless time, energy, money, resources going into this obsession to uphold this thin ideal. And if you're not in that thinness, then you are therefore bad. It Got demonizes it. certain ways of eating. So good foods and bad mm -hmm. foods, which is really challenging because all foods fit. All foods have nutrition value. All foods have emotional value too. Um, one's not better than the other. But when you start to crave certain foods, we can talk about carbs because carbs are certainly one food group that gets really demonized a lot, then you feel a sense of shame for wanting that food or you deprive yourself from that. So it disconnects you from your pleasure and your own autonomy, your own sense of intuition. Um, diet culture itself is rooted in uh, racism, white supremacy, patriarchy, heteronormativity, gender phobia, capitalism, I can keep going. And Again, in that handout, tons of resources. I could talk about this for a very long time. <laughs> one, one book I'll mention right now is by Sabrina Strings called Fearing the Black Body, The Racist Origins of Fat Phobia. So around the 16th to 18th centuries, um, race scientists, you know, people, the white Europeans who formed the concept of race to basically justify enslavement of Africans wanted to differentiate white Europeans who were more slender than fat Africans. Um, so aside from skin color, hair texture, uh, they focused on body size and how people were eating, what they were eating, uh, even demonizing sexual behavior. So thinness became code for white and therefore superior. And after That's quite that, unfortunate. Oh, yeah. Super unfortunate. 
And after that, it just continues to spiral into um, our medical practices and the formation of the body measure and body measurement index BMI, which is totally not based on actual. So stupid. (laughs) Very stupid, very horrible, continues to uh, perpetuate weight stigma. So it is all based on this sense of power control and violence against uh, that's rooted in anti-blackness. That's really good to know. I, I didn't have that awareness and I'm, I'm really glad for that. Um, so what is body trust exactly? Yeah, body trust is that innate connection to your own body, that no one knows your own body better than you do. And we are all born with it right away. We've got it. We have a sense of intuitive eating. And that is something that is connected to body trust is that sense of being able to feed yourself and trust yourself to, to eat and know what you like, know what you don't like, allowing your body to exist uh, just as it is. No need to change it. Mm-hmm. So in preparing these questions, I read that we were born with an inherent trust in our bodies, but often we get disconnected from the knowing by things such as trauma, oppression, illness, ableism, and social constructs of gender, race, beauty, health, and weight. It's obvious that in our society, our relationship to our bodies is often not thought about through the lens of social justice or our privileges or lack thereof. How did you get interested in things like body trust, body liberation, and the health at every size approach? Yeah. So I wish I remembered the moment when I found it. <laughs> I don't. I, I, it was in grad school and an internship um, but I have my own history of an eating disorder. That's part of my own way, my disconnection from body trust manifested and uh, have done some work around that, of course. And in the field, I think it was just a colleague sent me an article or some kind of connection to the topic of health at every size. Maybe it was a webinar. Somehow I found it and my body exhaled. It just, ah, this is it. This is the missing piece to really being embodied, to feeling at home, to feeling at ease in my own self. Um, Not that it's easy. Of course, we live in, in the world we live in, diet culture is a trillion dollar industry. The 1% profit, you know, very, very much from our body shame. Um, Sonia Renee Taylor, who wrote The Body's Not an Apology, has a great question of, who profits from your self-hatred? And that is um, just making those connections really for my recovery and my journey in embodiment was just life-changing. And then I continued to study and uh, research and train and do that work with my clients and seeing them have their own life-changing experiences just by knowing the facts about mm-hmm. diet culture, weight, size diversity, Yeah, totally. So body trust is informed by the health at every size approach. Can you tell us more about that approach? Absolutely. So health at every size is uh, founded on just disconnecting the, the thought that weight is a choice that we choose to what our body looks like and that BMI and weight equals health. So it's disconnecting that, that it's just not there. Um, It's also about 
ending weight discrimination, weight stigma, weight bias, providing respectful care, expanding our definition of health in general. So much of the medical industrial complex focuses on weight as the only measurement of health. When there's physical health, there's emotional health, spiritual, financial, um, environmental. So it also talks about the social determinants of health, which include what environment you live in, childhood trauma, access to schools, access to drinking water, access to nutrition, nutritious food and a variety of foods. Um, so focusing just on weight does not take into account actually all of the factors that really go into someone's health. Got it. Okay. What is a marginalized body and what are some examples of marginalized bodies? A marginalized body is any body that has been impacted by systemic oppression. So black bodies, brown bodies, Asian bodies, disabled bodies, fat bodies, queer bodies, trans bodies, undocumented bodies, um, older bodies, we have a culture. Mm -hmm. So any body that has been impacted by the sense of othering, of not belonging, of any sort of discrimination. Got it. For individuals with marginalized bodies, why are the concepts of body trust and body liberation especially important? So incredibly important to feel at home in your body, to be in your body. One, for general mental health. I mean, I see literal transformation of people's um, satisfaction in their life just by feeling able to exist in their body uh, without their own shame. Of course, continue to have to deal with systemic oppression. So a lot of the time we are embodied in our own self and still have to navigate going to the doctor and getting weight shamed, not being able to um, access seats even in the waiting rooms if there's uh, arms on the seats, airplanes being super, super tiny and continuing to get smaller. <laughs> it feels like- Yeah, it's so awful. <laughs> Horrible, not accessible at all for anyone. Um, so that sense of liberation just can have people actually exist in their lives and find more satisfaction, pleasure, joy. And that's, isn't that the point of life? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With your clients, how do you go about handling shame? With my clients, yeah, how we go about that is bringing awareness to it in the first place. Um, no, noticing where these messages started to come from. Many times it's before the age of 10. So there is a very strong generational component. I see lots of family messaging being passed down or even early peer experiences at schools, bullying, um, and being forced to diet. Lots of folks I work with, their parents either put them on a diet or doctors put them on a diet, definitely before the age of 10, which is um, in 2016, the American Academy of Pediatrics actually put in their guidelines that doctors and uh, parents should not be discussing weight or food with children. Uh, that still does happen quite a bit, but it is written in the, in the guidelines. So there is a little bit of progress there. Um, aside from just connecting to when a, a person first figured out or was told that their body was a problem, 
It's going through their story, their whole body story of how their body has helped them survive, brought them to this place where they are right now, the wisdom rooted in their body and having self-compassion and affirmation that we all experience the sense of shame towards the body. Um, it is okay. And the healing is in returning to that innate connection. So tons of self-compassion, understanding where it came from in the first place. So typically family or early experiences, lots of um, unlearning just based on podcasts, books, uh, community is incredibly important. So groups or Facebook groups or other kind, kind of unlearning experiences. So they don't just hear it from me. <laughs> um, and maybe I'm just talking, you know, there goes my wild therapist saying some random shit. And okay, no, there's tons of community research out there, books. Again, podcasts are really helpful for people that are very accessible. Um, so learning and unlearning, actually getting out there to engage that left brain, which is super important. Got it. Okay. Now we talked about body trust. Now what is body liberation and why body liberation and not body love? Great question. So body love, and if anyone's on Instagram, it's like hashtag body positivity. It is um, very watered down co-opted by thin people who are, and that's great. I want everyone to be able to feel proud and, and have no shame towards their bodies. But that's not the point. It's not just the point. The point is also for access to care. It's to end discrimination. It's not just for someone to love their own body, but for the whole world to exist for and with marginalized bodies. So that way there's access, again, to care, uh, minimal weight discrimination, policies in place so that there is equitable resources for everyone, and true liberation, not just, oh, I love my body, it's cool today, cool, um, but a true freedom to be able mm -hmm. to move about the world without shame from yourself or others. There comes the S word again. Yeah. Big word. Very big word. So why do we need ideas like body trust and body liberation in the mix? Great question. Um, you mentioned the S word shame. It's a big word uh, because without discussing that disruption, without being able to even connect again with your body, we don't process or metabolize the grief, the rage, that this is a concept altogether, that it, it is directly connected to violence against black people. There is a ton of grief, ton of rage that is just being, isn't just floating around. Um, when we're able to really embody the messaging and connect, oh, where did this come from? This is truly connected to, um, again, white supremacy. We're able to metabolize what has happened and then we can go for liberation for all. So we talk about body liberation, but really we're also talking about black liberation. Mm -hmm. And that, that is the aim, that we all can exist 
all of us without harm, without fear of violence, without discrimination, and everyone being able to take up their space and their body really does push us towards that uh, freedom. Mm-hmm. How does one go about body liberation? Well, starting, just start somewhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, just start somewhere, pick up a book, pick up a podcast, maybe listen to this podcast. Um, the handout will have some you know, resources as well of other books and articles to read, but it's just getting started. Maybe read an article, see how it feels. Um, the most important part is to notice the disembodiment. Notice you're not connected. Notice the shame. Understand when it happened. Uh, and then grieve. Mm-hmm. Grief is a huge component to this work. Absolutely, I can see that. Lots of There's tons of places to get started, <laughs> um, which is why I'm saying just to start somewhere and be in community. I think mm-hmm. that's one of the most important parts of my development personally and professionally is to be in community. Um, we are swimming upstream. Diet culture, again, trillion-dollar industry, it's everywhere. Um, somehow I'm getting ads for Noom on my phone, and Noom is a diet <laughs> app. I'm yeah. not switching diet things, so I don't know how it found me. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's a huge force that we have to work against. So being able to be connected with other people who are sharing the journey is incredibly affirming. How can body love and body liberation be like practiced in everyday life? Like what would that look like other than like podcasts and and books and the like? It is about um, decentering weight and decentering the role it plays in your own life um, and the work you do with clients and calling out diet culture. So are you still dieting? Do you allow yourself to have unconditional permission to eat what you want? Uh, Do you know what you want? Again, this is, again, intuitive eating can be about food, but it's also about needs, wants, desires, pleasure, satisfaction. So are you able to connect to that? Do you have self-compassion? Practicing self-compassion is a huge part of the practice. Mm -hmm. So literally following your gut. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay literally following your guts. And (laughs) if you weigh yourself, why do you weigh yourself? Do you feel uh, self-judgment or judgment from others? If you go buy new clothes, right? We're starting to lift from this pandemic and quarantine. Do you need new clothes? Are they a size bigger, size smaller, whatever? How do you feel about that? And if you don't feel great about it, interrogate that. Why don't you feel good about it? It's really just bringing awareness to all of the ways uh, diet culture covert and overtly enter your life. Um, if you're dieting, maybe connecting with a dietitian, help at every size dietitian who can help you on the nutrition aspect. Learning nutrition's role is in general a really important component as well. Um, and self-compassion. I can't stress that enough. Yeah, yeah. 
So body liberation and body trust are essentially an unwriting of the things we are taught and socialized. So as a therapist, what's unteaching those beliefs like? Oh, it is, it can be lonely and incredibly worth it. Um, Again, I can't emphasize community enough just because we are going up against, um, I I was giving a presentation earlier today actually to some social workers who had never heard about uh, diet culture and body liberation and lots of questions. And it just takes a lot of energy. It's a lot of labor. So it can be really draining, but incredibly worth it. Uh Holding people's stories and just the harm that they've experienced. I mean, incredible, incredible stigma from doctors to the point where people are not even getting adequate care. So there are many fat people who go to doctors with physical symptoms and they're overlooked because doctors and nurses focus on weight. So they're prescribed weight loss, which um, leads to dieting. And what we know statistically is that one in four dieters will develop an eating disorder. It's 25% of people who diet. Um, I work a lot with eating disorders and it's hard. It's really hard to hold that and doing that work with people and then watching them go through their own journey is beyond fulfilling. Um, and it does work. It's a, hor- it's a very torturous process. It is it's hard. Um, but to see them go through it and on the other side and being in their body, even just 15% more and finding more satisfaction and being able to live life. Um, there is a huge correlation that I see in folks and particularly because people find me because I'm queer and non-binary and a lot of folks come and then awaken as they allow themselves to connect to their own body, awaken who they are and they come out to themselves and maybe other people and they truly live their life. And it's, I mean, I can't put it into words how magical that is to watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I I can relate from a different perspective. Um, So this unteaching, do you use act with that at all in terms of, of that, that aspect of things with that? hundred percent. It's connecting to values um, and being able to see if what we're doing is leading us towards the life that we want to have with the overlay of social justice, of course, to understand why we feel the way we do towards our bodies. We do the things we do um, really provides just an affirmation of, oh, this is why I do that. That makes sense. Is this what I want in my life? When I'm 90 and I have my 90th birthday party and my loved ones are giving a speech about me, what do I want them to say? It is certainly not going to be that I counted calories every day and what a win that was. Absolutely right. not. So what really matters in life? How can we shed the bullshit from this oppressive system and be able to experience fully life? Mm-hmm. Okay. Very cool. Very interested in these concepts. Um, Is there anything I haven't asked about body liberation and body trust that you think is important to say? Oh, there's so much to say. Um, 
So <laughs> anyone who's listening who wants to continue the conversation, I'm super open to ongoing dialogue. Uh, just find me. I think in the show notes, you, know, you can. Yeah, I'll have stuff. your website. Yeah, because this is maybe a portal, maybe a slight opening, a door opening. Um, I encourage folks to start walking through it. It is really life-changing. It is hard to believe. There's a lot of folks, when I start to talk about health at every size, and just that there's another way. This is a complete paradigm shift from what we're talking about. So it is natural to not believe it. It's natural to discount it. Um, And I can truly say, being someone who obviously fully believes in it, that it is beyond necessary for us all to understand the connection um, and that we can exist in our bodies without shame. And that's how we will all move forward towards liberation for all. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. Well, switching roles out of the topic and more about you as a therapist, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? I see all folks in my practice. I've worked with trans, non-binary folks, undocumented folks. It is harder, uh, and BIPOC folks for sure, disabled uh, folks. It's harder for folks to understand that what they struggle with is disordered eating or an eating disorder because the stereotype out there is of a thin, cishet young woman who's affluent. Um, However, that is so not the case. I think the research is showing that maybe just 20% of those who have an eating disorder fit that stereotype. So the vast majority of folks who have disordered eating are not that stereotype. So that is one of the things I've noticed is just access to understanding what you are experiencing is a valid thing. And then coming to my office or other wonderful providers' offices is that next step. Mm -hmm. Okay. What could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on an ongoing basis? Yeah. In an initial session, it's very conversational. I don't have a question-by-question assessment. It's just being... um, And virtually it's a little different, but in person, it's feeling each other's body. (laughs) Do you have a felt sense of safety with me? Um, That's my overarching hope is that there is that just internal knowing that I am here for you unconditionally, um, which is important for therapists in wanting to explore this anti-fat bias to do their own implicit bias work around it because it is just in the tissues. It's in the body. So when I sit with a client, whoever they are, especially with their um, marginalized identities, do they have that sense of, I can do work with this person? Um, So that's kind of my aim for that first session. And of course, just learning more about the human in front of me, having them ask me any questions that they need to know about me and feeling it out. Ongoing wise, um, we go where the client wants to go with a little bit of direction from me. I might ask some questions. Um, We'll definitely practice somatically as well. So I will be that therapist who asks you, what do you notice in your body? Uh, There's seen some really funny memes out there about that. Um, But it's it's important. I believe in it. So I ask that quite a bit. And it's 
pretty conversational again. Um, we do laugh, we do cry, and it's a beautiful relationship. I really do treasure the clients I get to work with. Okay. How would you say your clients would describe or experience you? That's a great question. Um, I wish I could ask them right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think they know that I am 100% on their side, that they will get someone who's real and will offer genuine compassion, will offer um, so much empathy, but also challenge a little bit. Um, I definitely ask the hard questions. And I think I do so in a tactful way. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, at least I hope that's what they feel on the other side. Um, someone who's open to repairing, I of course will make missteps and I want to know that feedback and I want to repair if uh, the client is interested in that. Um, I also run a ton of groups, so that happens a lot um, in group in general as well. So I just hope clients will describe that this is a place where they can exist 100% knowing I'm there to witness, support, and love. I do love all of my clients, and I hope they know that. Are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? 100%. 100%. Um, this year particularly, right, we've all been through so, so much, Um it is impossible to not emote with your clients. That is what is healing, that laughter connection. And to see reflected back to them that I'm resonating with them. Um, I also believe, you know, in psychodynamic approaches where if I'm feeling something, does it match what they're feeling? Is it an induced feeling that they're not holding? So any emotion that I have is certainly studied and we discuss it with the client about, what might I, what might I be holding that's theirs or that's mine? Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I was reading on one of the many therapist groups that I'm a part of online and there was a discussion about hugs and this one therapist was posting about how a client asked for a hug and basically, it just brought the whole topic of hugs up to the surface. And there were a mixed amount of people. And I was surprised. You know, if somebody asked me for a hug, I would not say no. And then there were therapists on there who said, oh, if somebody asked me for a hug, I'd go to high five them instead. Um, like that, that to me, that would be incredibly embarrassing. And I don't know that I would even go back to that therapist. Like, there's just a certain like trust something there that I don't know. What are your thoughts yeah. on it? Oh, my thoughts are, ouch, to go yeah. to your therapist and get a high five. Ugh, no, yeah. I'm a, I'm a hugger. Absolutely. Um, you know, growing up, I mostly grew up with my Mexican family and that's just culturally what we do. It's very strange to me to be in Austin and back when we would network and go to these therapist events where you just don't hug that much. Yeah. Um, so I definitely am a hugger just in general, culturally, and I let my clients know that. So it's their choice. They know I'm available if they want it. Um, some clients take me up on it and some don't, some do it every session, obviously not now during the virtual world, but, 
Um, and then some do it just after a tough session or when they feel like they need it. So it's really up to them. It is a beautiful concept to explore with the client about touch in general and of course. some really wonderful exploration about some clients not feeling deserving of touch. Maybe I'm one of the few people that they do allow to touch. Um, it's really, really powerful. So I, it makes me frustrated that that is something that is stigmatized in the traditional totally. scope of therapy, which is complete bullshit. Yeah. Agreed. And I, I love, I love how you called yourself a cultural hugger. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a new, a new identity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> love it. Okay. Next question. And I love this question because I love the answers that I tend to get. How do you define holding space for someone? Mm. Well, the holding environment is what is therapy. And my belief is that true felt sense. So when I'm with someone in a group or individually or in relationship work, my whole being is present. So I feel my feet on the ground. I feel my butt in the chair. I feel what's happening in my body, tracking it, tracking them. So there is just true, genuine connection. Um, and that is something it's hard to teach and hard to put into words because it comes from the inside. So it's truly my heart is just like, I think I described it to a client the other day of if anyone remembers Care Bears and they have their little Care Bear stare from their belly, which is just this rainbow light that comes out. That's basically my way of describing how I hold space is I am that exuding that care for my person and showing them that I, I be, believe at least that they are amazing, wonderful creatures and I love them dearly. Awesome. I love Care Bears too. In fact, I have a, a animation cell of, like, of a Care Bears episode on my wall over here. Oh, nice. um, <laughs> um, what is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Well, these are great questions. I've received amazing guidance, so it's hard to pick one. But the first one coming to mind is talk about everything. So in consultation, it is literally say everything, whether you think it's related to a client or not. Um, there is so much power in just letting what comes up in your body and your reactions to your clients exist. And sometimes it's something to be studied. Sometimes it's not, but to just say everything. I have found amazing insights into my world and my client's world just by talking about something I thought was totally random and not relevant to the original question I was exploring. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Oh, this is deep. <laughs> ah, through my practice, um, I've learned incredible self-compassion and non-urgency. I've really, really learned right relationship, that we are going to fuck up with people. That's going to happen. I'm going to miss a tune my, to myself, to my clients. People are going to miss a tune to me. I get to give feedback. I get to receive feedback. And that is 
so healing to be in dialogue when we have those ruptures to say, oh, that didn't sit right. And for me as a therapist to respond, you are so right. I am so sorry. Thank you for letting me know. I will do better. Can you imagine growing up having that experience with your parents? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, life-changing. Yeah. So it's really, I've learned so, so much. I, I could just continue on and on. But that is probably the most profound thing is authentically relating uh, with other people. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you do to take care of yourself? Meditation. About to go on vacation, <laughs> which is super, super important. Taking breaks from holding space, right? That Care Bear stare. That mm-hmm. is energy. I mean, it's super mm-hmm. rewarding and I love doing it and can be very exhausting, especially over Zoom these days. It's been extra exhausting. So uh, I've also reduced my caseload a little bit. So I'm not seeing as many people as I used to see. Um, cuddle time with my dogs, taking hikes and walks with my wife. Um, laughing. I find laughing incredibly healing and helpful. And um, cooking, I love to cook, just hanging out, drinking good beer, and um, enjoying as much as I can. And, well, now it's starting to be a little bit more, but socializing as well, connecting with right. others. Awesome. How would you define happiness? Ooh, happiness. Happiness is not guaranteed, right? Like that's one of those emotions, it's something that comes and goes. So I, in my meditation practice, have really been rooting in equanimity, which is deep okayness, mm-hmm. like that it's okay, I'm happy, and that's okay, I'm sad, and that's okay. Um, I've had some pretty significant death losses in the last two years, and navigating that as well as being a therapist <laughs> during COVID has mm-hmm. been incredibly challenging. So by the definition of happiness, I've not been happy. That's for sure. Not at all happy, but I've been okay. And, and I'm okay with not being excited all the time and, and joyful as much as I probably will be in a later portion of my grief process. And that's all okay. Okay. As if uh, this entire interview isn't vulnerable by nature, but next two questions are a little bit vulnerable. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician? That is a great question. And this was not virtually, but um, I have had a client and this happened twice with the same client. It's a, it was a Monday, 9 a.m. So that's probably uh, enough information of how, how a therapist feels Monday at 9 a.m. <laughs> uh, or anyone really. My buttons of my shirt were open twice. I think it happened back to back even. So that was fun and embarrassing. Having my client let me know my shirt was open it was really interesting. Good for the work. That's for sure. Love that they (laughs) felt comfortable to let me know. Um, and it humanized me Mm -hmm. really made us more connected and our work continues 
very deeply to this day. That's awesome. They don't uh, next, for that in school, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. I, I had someone on who said, talked about a, a pant ripping at one point as well. So yep. wardrobe malfunctions. <laughs> that happens. Um, next question is, are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Yes. So I'm very pro-therapy, individual therapy. I'm in group therapy been in couples therapy, um, individual consultation, group consultation, peer consultation, which can turn into being very therapeutic. Um, So I do love therapy very much. Cool, cool. Well, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you? The, just that I'm open to being, you know, if someone wants to reach out and have any questions or if I can point anyone in helpful directions, I very much believe in collective support and am here. If there's anything I can do, whether it's working with me or if I can point you in any direction or be at all helpful on anyone's journey and as a therapist or as a client, because this is all super, super hard, messy work and there is a beautiful community to support and I'm happy to be a part of that however I can. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for next week's episode, which will feature a mystery guest, because I don't know who is going to be on the show yet because we had a cancellation. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmit Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmit Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash nextquestpodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.